0: Um, if you're visiting with us, uh, welcome. I'm glad you're here. My name's Chris. I'm on staff here at Riverstone, and we are in the middle of a conversation on prayer. Uh, we've been using Jesus's teaching uh, on prayer, primarily the Lord's Prayer, uh, as a springboard to explore uh, realities about God um, that most certainly guided the prayers of Jesus Himself. So Jesus said stuff like, "Hey, when you pray." get alone, don't be showy. And guess what? When Jesus prayed, he got alone. And so it just makes sense that when he gives us the Lord's Prayer, it, these are the guiding thoughts that guided his own prayer life. Um, and we've been going through this prayer, and we've, as we've been going through it, we've also been exploring how, uh, why we don't pray, or maybe exploring the ideas Uh, of the challenges that we face when we try to pray, the struggle to pray, right? For so many, prayer is kind of an afterthought um, or what you do before meals or what you do if you're really in a tight spot, you know, in life. And yet for Jesus, um, prayer seemed to be more like daily bread. For for Jesus, prayer seemed to be more like the air he breathed. In fact, the dominance of prayer in Jesus' own life and in the life of his disciples would lead New Testament writers to write things like pray without ceasing in all things, right? 1 Thessalonians 5. In other words, the disciples um, of Jesus think prayer is more like daily bread and oxygen and less like birthday cake or emergency flares, right? It's to be a daily, ongoing ethic of what it means to follow Jesus. And the reason is pretty common sense if you think about it. I don't know of any relationship in any sphere of life that can last long without continual and honest communication. Okay, so any place of life, right? So prayer at its root is simply talking to God. We don't need to dress it up anymore. It's just talking to God. If I I stopped talking to my wife outright, (laughs) things would not go well in the Westbrook household, right? And then add to this the biblical paradigm that for the people of God, God himself is to have the ultimate and unchallenged place of highest affections and honor and love in their life. For the saints, y'all, God is the most important relationship for them over and above every other relationship. He is to have priority. It's why uh, the first half of the Lord's prayer is first and foremost concerning the priority of God. It's why the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul strength. And if we consider these things, it perhaps becomes evidence evident why, for so many people, their Christian walk feels impotent and irrelevant. Well, it's because they've missed the fundamental claim of what it means to be a Christian. What exactly are you redeemed for? What exactly have you been restored to? Well, it's, it's intimate, unrestricted relationship with God. And if you miss this fundamental objective of the Christian life, then of course prayer is going to seem silly and irrelevant and why do we do it, right? How do you sustain any relationship? Communication. It's how, it's how relationships begin. Hello, my name is. It's how relationships are sustained, right? this not only explains for some of us why your relationship with God is underwhelming, right? Because you aren't engaging, you're not communicating with him, but I'd imagine there's plenty of us in this room as well who are in relationship with others, maybe in this room, kids, spouse, friends, and that relationship right now is stressed and you are frustrated in that relationship. And at its root, it's because you've not been communicating. We have several professional counselors who will back me up on this. So, I hope you've been challenged uh, by this conversation, but more, I hope uh, the way you think about God, especially how you interact with God, um, has been impacted, because here's the deal, y'all. This whole conversation on prayer is great, right? I've enjoyed it, right? But unless it makes its way into your actual living, it's just talk, and talk is cheap, right? So if you've been nodding your head and saying amen, that's great. I love that. I'm glad. But unless you actually allow what we're talking about to inform your actual living, it's all for naught. So I just want to encourage you do it. Do it. Do the things we've been talking about. Circle back around to the ideas that we're going to hit on today and get along with God and just give it a try. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> What's the worst thing that could happen? You know? Um, so this week, uh, we turn a corner in the Lord's Prayer. All right? Almost All the prayer up to this point has been concerning, like I said earlier, the priority and centrality of God. Almost all the prayer has been concerning that, been indicating that, been pointing to that, what he is, what he's like, what he's doing, what his desires are, his will is. It all establishes, all the beginning of this prayer establishes a belief system that hinges on one thing. Who is God? What is he like, right? Or you could say it this way. Prayer will always be started. It will always be catalyzed and sustained by the character and nature of God. Not by your discipline. Not by anything that you bring. Prayer will always... Listen, man, I'm telling you, you're like, no, you're not right. And listen, it will always be catalyzed and sustained by the character and nature of God. Who he is. And we've talked about this at length. You're not gonna pray to a guy who's up there with a lightning bolt ready to get you, right? So you will talk to him Because you believe perhaps that he listens, maybe that he's near, maybe that even as Jesus said, he is like a father who loves you deeply. And If you begin to believe the things that we've been talking about, it changes how you pray. When Jesus went to pray, his mind was centered around who God was first and foremost, father, holy, and king. And those are the three things that we've talked about at length. This, I think, should and will always be the gravitational pull of our praying, perhaps over and above simple needs. Okay. And I'd argue if we'd learn to pray like Jesus is teaching us to pray, we will find our prayers saturated with heartfelt worship, which positions our hearts to enjoy and delight in his presence with us. So now the prayer shifts y'all. So let's, let's read it together as we've been doing. Um, and let's let the prayer remind us of what we've, if you've been with us, what, what, remind us what we've gone over so far and then we'll branch out to the next. But you guys ready? Let's read it. Is it up? Here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Nice. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen and amen. So today we sit with, Give us this day our daily bread. And we notice the prayer shifts to talking to God about the reality of our own lives, our needs, daily bread, our failures our daily sustenance and struggles. The first thing to point out here is the framework in which Jesus is working and thus wants his disciples to work. The prayer, give us this day our daily bread, carries with it a fundamental assumption about reality. Primarily, that every common thing we enjoy that sustains us physically, emotionally, spiritually, food, drink, community, relationships, rest, health, ability to work are all gift, give us this day. And if we think about it, right? For so many of us, uh, for so, I'm sorry, for so many things in reality are really outside of our control, right? Rain, sun to grow food, other people. <laughs> oh, you can control other people, right? <laughs> the functionality of many of your internal body organs, What are you doing right now to make your spleen keep working, right? Your eyes or your heart. I mean, you can stop it, right? If you try hard, right? I mean, we can mess them up, right? But I can't take credit for my heart continuing to beat it. It just does. It's not really inside my... All these things, y'all, are gifts, whether we want to admit it or not. Our day, the things that sustain you emotionally, physically, all these things, gifts from God. Jesus wants us to see the reality of God's goodness behind every sustaining thing we enjoy, right? If God made everything, if that's true, then the sun rising, the fact you woke up today alive and well, the people around you, all gift, give us today. And when we begin to see this, we begin to naturally live out of a place of gratitude and recognition towards God. It just kind of births worship. You can't help but to start worshiping if everything we enjoy is a gift. And it's asking for today, for right now, my needs, your real needs your sustenance, where you're actually at. And it harkens back to Exodus when the Hebrews were sustained in the wilderness by God providing manna, which literally means what? Exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, question mark. It was daily bread, right? He sustained them supernaturally in the wilderness. So too today, God apparently wants to, out of his goodwill towards you, sustain you and provide for you. And when we understand this as gift, it alters our minds and hearts towards gratitude. If we see everything that we enjoy as gift, all of life, right? If we see it as gift, all of life begins to sing. Let me say that again. If you begin to see the daily things of life, the daily bread, good food, sunsets, if we begin to see these things as gift, all of it begins to sing to sing. It does. And what is the lyrical content of that song? The goodness of God, right? The heavens, y'all, are declaring the goodness of God, right? Physical of food, bread, everything is now enjoyed, can be enjoyed by Christians at a much more fundamental and deeper level than non-Christians. Now, let's dig a bit deeper into bringing our needs before god and why jesus teaches why jesus teaches us to do so before jesus is teaching on prayer before he launches into this whole thing lord's prayer he says this are you ready when you pray don't heap up empty phrases as the gentiles do for they think they'll be heard for their many words Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him okay what's your natural response to this The father knows what you need before you ask him. Does anyone else say, wait, if he already knows what I need, why is he telling me to ask him? I mean, can we just skip the middleman and just give me what, you know, but but he already knows, right? I need common things to survive. I need food. I need bread. And he already wants me to, he already wants to give them to me. Why does he teach us to ask? Jesus taught often you're supposed to ask. For good things, not just here, all throughout scripture, all throughout the gospels, right? Even the next chapter, Jesus says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, thanks Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father in heaven give good things to you who ask him? It's as if this, this thing about asking God for good things, sustenance, provision. It's as if God has this abundance of goodness. It's as if he has reservoirs of kindness towards us that he's just waiting to pour on our heads. Waiting for what? For you to ask. Can you get much else from that? teaching? Ask. The thing about asking, why don't we ask? The thing about asking is it's humbling, isn't it? It's why dudes don't ask for directions, right? It's why we don't ask for help when we're trying to impress others, right? (laughs) See, asking acknowledges your limitations, doesn't it? At the same time, it acknowledges the person you are asking has something you don't have. The person you're, it acknowledges an authority over you, right? It acknowledges they're in a place that they can help you. You don't ask the person drowning next to you for help. You ask the person, person on the shore for help, right? You ask when you believe someone actually has the ability and willingness to help, don't you? You ask when you actually believe someone has the ability and willingness to help you. What does that say to us about what we believe about God? He doesn't have the ability or he doesn't have the willingness, right? How else do you explain you are not asking? It seems Jesus is trying to help us understand something. That if we will acknowledge our needs, failures even, acknowledge not only God's ability, but his desire to meet those needs, he will. God will. How much more? Will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? Now, we should notice, Jesus is asking for bread and fish, not a Tesla and a beach house. God is not your magic genie to make you materially rich. He is your provider. He does long to protect and sustain you and lead you into true life. But that may look a little different than we define true life, right? And if you need help with this, the Beatitudes will challenge your notion of who is really well off, who is blessed. What true life really is. But the point is, Jesus taught us to ask God for things that he admitted God already knew we needed. And he taught this over and over. I'm going to prove it to you again, right? Luke 18, he told them a parable to the effect that they should ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Judge. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my Adversary. Adversary anniversary, is what I almost said. I was like, what's the word that I was trying to, adverse, ad, adversary, got it, Whew. For For a while, the judge refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, listen to this, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Jesus is basically saying, bother me, nag me. He's admitting that there will be times where it seems like your prayer is not being answered. That's that's conceded in this teaching, isn't it? There will be times well, you will be praying, and it will seem like your prayer is not being answered. But he tells this parable not to say, don't, don't lose heart. Keep asking. And in this parable, it's a request for justice, specifically, right? It's a request that God right the wrongs done against you, right? The prayer, I mean, what the, what the widow is basically saying is, this isn't fair. And everyone knows it, right? Justice. It's a sense of fairness, dignity. Justice is essential for human flourishing, right? Injustice, perhaps not just against you, but injustice in the world. God is inviting you to ask him over and over, bring justice in the world. Ask me again, ask me again. He's inviting you into meaningful engagement and intimacy. Through what? Through what? Through bringing your simple request to him. And in this case, you're complaining, right? Requests that we know will always be mixed with selfishness and arrogance. He's saying, bring it to me, all of it, right? When I tell my kids, ask me again, (laughs) I am not inviting into intimacy, right? (laughs) Right? Ask me again, see what happens, right? Worlds (laughs) apart from what Jesus is getting at right here, right? Jesus is saying, Beat the doors of heaven down with your request. Beat them down. Over and over and over. Ask. In fact, if you notice the, the other one, ask, seek, knock, it is increasing in intensity, right? Becoming more aggressive. Asking, then pursuing, then finding out where they live. Knocking on the door, right? The parable of the unjust judge is perfect because it has the word also in it, which kind of helps us turn a corner here, elect. Did you guys catch that word? Elect. God will not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. And here's just a passing note right here. Here's another reason why I think some of us don't engage with God. Um, I don't want to offend anyone, but it's because we're Calvinists. <laughs> right? Yeah, hang with me. Hold on. Or you're a Calvinist. I don't know. I don't know what's described to anything. But. <laughs> if God already predestined everything, stay with me which I believe he has, if he is in perfect sovereign control over all things, which, which I believe he is, and he already knows what we need, which I believe he does, why pray? Anyone feel that? Does it make a little sense to you? Like if, if the more immovable God feels to you, the more set in stone history is, then why on earth should we ask God to change anything? He's already going to do what he's going to do. Why would he listen, right? Anyone feel that tension a little bit? He's going to do what he's going to do. He's sovereign. He's in control. What's the good in asking? So whether or not you want to admit it, you have to see the connection between this idea about God and a potential apathy towards praying and asking God to engage in your life. And it may explain for some of us why we don't really pray very much. God's God. He's going to do his thing. He's already done the deal. It's all predestined. Why why should I get in there and ask? Listen, listen. There is clear and indisputable evidence of the sovereignty of God over all of history, all of history, okay? Bad, good, everything, all right? I believe he's in control, y'all. But that, shouldn't that fuel our request? I mean, shouldn't that make us more, uh, shouldn't it specify in our minds who should we be asking things about, right? That's the guy we want to be asking, right? But for some of us, the fact that God's in complete control, the fact that he's predestined and things, just kind of equals an apathy in our request before the, for the Lord, right? And, that, and at root, I think hardline Calvinists may be apathetic towards prayer, not because they believe in a fixed universe, because they really don't believe God loves them and listens to them, you know? And that's like all of us, right? Because just as clear and indisputable in Scripture, we see God listening and acting in response to the prayers of his people. Now, this is a biblical tension that you have to figure out what to do with. The fact that God is in perfect control, predestined all things, knows history, looks at history like we look at a map. He sees everything, beginning in everything. Designed, he's in control, right? And yet, what we see in scripture, over and over and over again, is God responding and engaging because someone is asking, okay? And I'm going to show you real quick. In fact, we have two instances in the Old Testament where God changes his mind because someone asked him. All right, I'm going to prove it to you. Most clearly seen in Exodus 32, when Moses goes up to the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, right? Comes down to an idol worshiping orgy. And God's like, step aside, Mo. I'm going to fry them all. I'm going to toast these guys. I'm going to start over with you, right? And Moses says... Don't do it. He said, Moses says, what will Egypt say when they figure out that you brought us out of Egypt through miraculous signs only to kill us in the wilderness, right? He to God's, he appeals to God's reputation, right? And then in 14, it says, verse 14 in Exodus 32, it says, Jehovah changed his mind about the harm he said he would do. The word there is, Nachahim literally means in Hebrew, repented. That God repented. That's in the Bible. Interesting, isn't it? Other example of this is in Second Kings twenty, when King Hezekiah falls ill, the Lord sends Isaiah to tell him, "Yeah, you're gonna die." And in true prophet form, Isaiah tells him he's gonna die. Turns around to leave, right? And it says that Hezekiah, yeah, right. The, the comfort of the Lord, you know, you're gonna die, you know. Thus says God. And it says that Hezekiah prayed to Jehovah. It says he turned his face to the wall and wept bitterly. He reasoned with God on the basis of how He had walked before him in truth, how he had had an undivided heart and had done what is good in God's sight. And before Isaiah could get halfway out the palace, God stops him. he says, "Go back to Hezekiah." Tell him I'll give him 15 more years. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy says, what we see here is a God who can be prevailed upon by those who faithfully stand before him. In fact, he seems to invite it in the teachings of Jesus, right? And beating down, right? Dallas goes on to address how inadequate ideas about God's sovereignty can hinder your desires to pray. Let me read it for you. God's response to our prayers is not a charade. Do you hear that? God's response to your prayer is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. Can you conclude anything else from the scriptures we just read? The idea... That everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether or not we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess uh, faith in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this, and neither would you. Suppose your children, still reading, believe that you never did anything differently because they ask you. For example, you will give them money on Friday evening, regardless of whether or not they ask you for it or not. But they also believe that you require them to go through the ritual of asking. And so they do it. On Friday evening, they approach you and ask you, give them some money for the weekend. They do it, even though they believe you're going to do it or not, regardless of whether or not, they, whether or not what, you know, what they ask. I'm sorry, what they do. This, unfortunately, is the idea some people have of prayer. Of course, this is not a biblical idea of prayer, nor is it the idea of people for whom prayer is a vital part of their life. He says, there is no silver bullet in prayer. Requests may be granted or may not. Either way, it will be for a good reason. And this is our great confidence in prayer, y'all, even prayers that are unanswered. Our great confidence is that he loves us. The first thing Jesus gets at when he says our father, right? That he's near to us in the heavens and that he hears you, right? Knowing that he sees the whole picture when we often see a tiny fragment, right? And when his answer to our requests is no, we step back in the confidence that he sees everything. And we see a very small part of it from our limited perspective. And at the end of the day, I think it's safe to say that God longs for us to engage with him even about the most simple things of our day. Daily bread, pretty simple, pretty monotonous, pretty unspiritual, right? That he cares deeply and longs to meet us in daily monotonous things of keeping our bodies fed and experiencing life even in its most simple and basic ways. And that he longs to bring, longs for us To bring our concerns and anxieties, our fears, y'all, even our sins, to him. I mean, isn't that what this is getting at, right? Don't over-spiritualize prayer. Look, look at the prayers in the Old Testament. Look at the Psalms. They're complaining to God. They are accusing God. They're asking God, why have you left me, right? Asking, how long am I going to feel so down, Lord? right? Jeremiah accused God of deceiving him. He said, you've seduced me. He said, you've made me the laughingstock of all my people. That's the prayer in the Bible, y'all. Listen, the promise we get, right, is not a life free of suffering, but that God is with us in the suffering, in the trial, in the loneliness, right? But y'all, how do you experience the nearness of God in those places? You have to invite him in. You have to invite him in, right? How do we experience his goodness to us when we are walking through a spiritual desert? You have to invite him in. Y'all, even in the sin, in the weakness, in the darkness. How's God gonna bless you if he can't get to you where you're at? You gotta invite him into that mess. And isn't it our prayer so often we don't pray because we don't have it together. Let the pastor pray. He's a holy man. I'm screwed up. Let him pray. I mean, it's happened all through the Bibles. Moses, don't, you go to, go to God for us, Moses. All right, we're always looking for a mediator. And yet Jesus comes to obliterate the religion of mediators. And he wants us to invite him in, not to the places of our strength, strength and, and nobility and our good ethic. And he wants us to invite us into the place of our weakness. And right, our darkness. And how can he get to us there if we're not willing to invite him in? It's only when we invite God into those places. Complain to him, y'all. Complain. He, he's, he's a big boy. He can handle it. He can handle your complaints. He can handle your accusations. He can even handle your sins. Isn't that the claim of the cross, y'all? And isn't our tendency to hide our weakness to hide our needs and only pray when we feel strong and spiritual and holy, but God cannot meet us unless we will invite him into those places, the normal unspiritual places, right? Let me read to you a little passage from Richard Foster and we'll wrap it up today. In the most natural and simple way, we learn to pray our experience by taking up the ordinary events of our everyday life and giving them to God. Perhaps we have crushing failure that gives us more than one sleepless night? Well, we pace the floor with God, telling him of our hurt and our pain and our disappointment. Why me? We cry out. Why me? For frustration and tears and anger are also the language of prayer. We invite God to walk with us as we grieve, We invite God to walk with us as we watch our dreams sail away. Maybe an offhand remark by a neighbor triggers a whole explosion of emotions within us. Anger, jealousy, fear. Very well, we speak frankly and honestly with God about what is happening and ask him to help us see the hurt behind the emotion. To believe that God can reach us and bless us in the ordinary junctures of daily life is the stuff of prayer. But we want to throw this away. So hard is it for us to believe that God would enter our space. But God can't bless me, we moan. When I graduate, when I'm the chairman of the board, when I'm the president of the company, when I'm senior pastor, then God can bless me. But you see, the only place where God can bless us is right where we are, because that is the only place we are. (laughs) Daily bread Daily needs, daily struggles, daily failures, all can be turned to reflect God's goodness in your own heart. All of these can be avenues in which he meets us if we will take them to God. Or as one pastor says, pray what you got, man. (laughs) Pray what you got. You got sorrow? You got anger? You got sin? You got frustration? Pray it. You got joy, you got gratitude? Pray it. Just pray what you got. This is something we do as you go. Discipleship is an as you go thing, right? As you go to work, as you do the normal things that you're already doing, right? Going to the humdrum of your job, dealing with your kids, all this is as we go. Pray what you got. You're angry? You're frustrated? You got a pile of dishes? Talk to the Lord about it. Why me, God? Why me? All the dishes. (laughs) <laughs> you got sin, you got sorrow, insecurity, anxiety. I want to challenge you to invite God into that. Invite God into it. And my gumption is that we will be surprised at the nearness that we feel, even in the darkness, when we invite God into it. And there's something the New Testament writers would say, peace that surpasses understanding. You know, he's talking about prayer, bringing everything to God. And you won't get a shot at that if you're not willing to invite God into the places you're not proud of. This is the content of prayer because what we see in scripture is God over and over and over again meeting people, guess what, exactly where they're at. And not only does he meet us there, but he invites us into his mission in the world and all that's facilitated through and by prayer. Let's stand and pray.